Hi everyone, I'm Summer. I'm Carrie. And this is Hypoxia Podcast. Join us to talk about sex, drugs, and self-improvement. So I met Joelle through my accidental TikTok debacle that has happened. Yeah. Um, So um, she had commented on some of the videos and found out that we have very rather similar stories. So she agreed to come and talk about her story and uh, the (laughs) glaring lack of resources in the system. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Now, Joelle, do you wanna kind of start us with uh, kind of the background on your experience with this? Sure. So in 2014, I began working in child welfare. Um, I worked there until October of 2020, so just over um, six years. It was like six years and two months. I started in August. During that time, you know, I was a permanency worker, so I met a ton of kids and fell in love with all of them. Um, And there was one kid in particular that I felt like I had a connection with. And so I um, pursued placement and adoption with him. Um, However, after some time, as I'm sure you can understand, it seems like the connection was one-sided. He was very violent with me. I remember before he was even adopted. And, you know, at that point, I should have been like, you know, I should probably step away and let somebody else have him. But I was stubborn and proud. Um, Anyway, before adoption, I remember him grabbing a knife from the kitchen and threatening to stab me because I found a credit card of mine that he had stolen. now it was a credit card that had been that I had canceled and I just never got around to throwing it away. And so the conversation was like, you know, you can't be doing stuff like this. Like I don't care what it is that you're taking, like it's not appropriate, you know, things like that. Um, and he lost his shit and went to the kitchen and grabbed a knife and threatened my life with it. And that kind of behavior continued for the two and a half years that I had him. Um, it, let's see, at one time he tried to light me on fire. Um, he would, I would wake up and he'd be standing over me in my room. Um, and, you know, he'd run away a lot and the cops would have to go look for him and they'd pick him up and be like, well, he'd be like, well, I run away because my mom's abusive to me. And my husband would be like, because my husband did not adopt Joseph. We got married after the adoption. Um, But he would be like, this is a domestically violent relationship, but my wife is the victim. Like, the child is not the victim, it's my wife. And, you know, DHS was in and out of our home, never really offered any help. Um, 
because I was a, I, I assume it's because I was a DHS worker and I should have known what the resources were. Um, however, when you're in the thick of it and it's chaos all the time and all you're doing is putting out fires as opposed to like trying to build your life and move forward, um, you kind of like lose focus of all of that. So um, the last night that he was in our home, he had ran away the night before. Um, we had to go to court. We had juvenile court because, let's see, this was in February. In the previous September, he had stole a truck and was driving south of town and wrecked it. And so he was involved with the juvenile system as a result of that. So we had to go to court for that. We came home, DHS showed up. Um, I knew they were coming. And after they left, he ran away again. The sheriff's office picked him up because we live outside of town. The sheriff's office picked him up and then um, wound up keeping him for three weeks in juvie because the judge just, like the judge got sick and then he rescheduled the hearing about him running away. And it was at that point that I was like, my life is so peaceful without having to constantly worry about what's going to happen to me or my husband or my stepkids who, I mean, I consider them my kids, but legally they're, the, they're my stepkids, you know, not having to worry about our safety at all because the threat was gone from the home. And so at that point, I contacted my attorney and was like, so I need you to go to court with me because I'm not bringing him home. It, it's not happening. And so she went into court with me and she was like, you cannot charge her with abandonment because of all of this going on. And the judge was like, okay, we'll take him into custody. And like, that was it. I mean, he still tries to contact me, obviously, but I don't, I don't answer the phone. Or if I do, if I am not paying attention and I answer the phone, uh, when I hear that it's him, I hang up. So you know why he's trying to contact you? Like what his motivation is? My counselor, um, well, I was in counseling for the entirety just about because um, of all the trauma and everything. And she suspects that it is because I'm kind of like the victim that got away, I guess. Um, like he's kind of hyper-focused on me because he didn't get to fully accomplish everything that he wanted to here. Um, and I'm not entirely sure about that. I do know that every time I hear from him or anything about him, I have a traumatic response to that. And we were in family counseling together. And the day that he ran away, actually, we had um, a family counseling session and he lunged at me in the counselor's office. And it was with his counselor, not mine, because I wanted to ensure that he felt comfortable um, talking and trying to work through whatever issues we were having. So he lunged at me and I instantly dissociated. And I was gone for like five minutes 
his, apparently his counselor tried everything to get me back and it just, it didn't work. So how old is he? He is 15 now. How old was he when all of that was happening? So he went into custody at nine. He came into my home at 11. And then he left my home right, the right, right before he turned 14. So did you have um, the, I don't know how to phrase this. So when you were going through all of this and you're trying to get help and you're dealing with police involvement and everything, mm -hmm. did they act like you're being ridiculous because this is a child? I remember at one point his counselor, and I know that she didn't mean anything by it. Um, and she was a huge help through everything that I went through with him. But I remember just being completely taken aback because she was like, he's just so small. You, you look at him and you think he's not capable of this. And I'm like, he literally tried to light me on fire like you don't need size to pick up a lighter and advance toward me with it lit you don't need size to break into my room at night and stand over me and intimidate me because i don't know that you're there until i wake up because i feel like i'm being watched you know at what point is he going to run away find a knife come back and split my throat you know yeah. So I was just, I was very taken aback by her being like, he's just so small. And then like the court system, the court system, they were like, well, obviously you're not parenting him right. And I'm like, I would love for you to take him into your house and you try to parent him for a week. Give it one week. That's it. Yeah, that's the most, that seems to be the two most common things we get told is this oh, is yeah. your fault because you're the parent and what's the big deal? They're just children. You should be able mm -hmm. to handle this, um, which I mean, okay, fine if they're four, but when I've got a kid that's the same size as me, what am I supposed to do, right? Like, and, well, the, and, and, and my daughter was coming up with weapons. I don't even know where she got them. They're not anything I ever owned. So obviously she's like stealing them from neighbors or something. So I, if she can do that, okay, to come up with a knife, how do I know she's not going to find a firearm over there or something, exactly. you know? Exactly. Um, now my kid, he was, he was small for his age, significantly so. He was probably the size of an eight or nine year old. However, there are still things that you can do despite your size. Yeah, like him breaking into your room, like anything right. can happen when you're asleep. Like you don't have to be a certain size, certain age exactly. to be able to inflict harm when someone's asleep. Right. right, like the first time my daughter tried to kill me, she was poisoning me by putting boric acid in my drinks. You can do that at any size. Yeah, exactly. And I know that my kid would have done that had he thought of it. There's no doubt in my mind. I remember 
I took him to get um, a psychological evaluation. He was diagnosed with numerous things. The one thing that stood out the most was childhood antisocial behaviors. Um, and during the review of it, because the doctor that I used, um, like she would meet with me, meet with him, and then she'd meet with me again a couple of weeks later just to go over the evaluation and what she found and things like that. And she said, Joel, I am really worried. I worked with her when I was at DHS. Like she was somebody that I used regularly for my clients. So she was like, I'm really worried. Um, I asked him about him trying to light you on fire. And he was just like, yeah, I did that. Like, no big deal. Yeah, it happened. And then she said, do you have a gun in the house? I said, I live in Southeast Oklahoma. Of course I have a gun in the house. She said, get it out now. She said, I don't care if it's locked up. I don't care if it's like in a fingerprint box. I don't care. Get it out of your house now because he will use it against you. Okay. Yeah, I took, I took mine out of my house too. I had one that um, I had, it was, honestly, I only had it because it was sentimental. I've never, I, I never ever have shot the thing because it was my grandfather's. And so it was, you know, and so it's just sentimental and I, yeah, I had to get it out of my house too. It's um, because you don't know what they're going to do with it. You know, it, exactly. when somebody's threatening to slit your throat while you're asleep and steal your vehicle to leave, I don't really think they're going to hesitate to use a firearm yeah. given the opportunity. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I had a similar conversation with a um, therapist at the outpatient clinic. It was trying to remember there's been so many hospitalizations so I think it was after the first residential um, stay when she came back and then of course they came that facility was really amazing with documentation and so the outpatient clinic got you know a lot of information which was not the case for when they, she came out of other facilities and so doing that and they, their eval and then I have no idea what she said to them after um you know, when they uh, talked to her, but they, she called me into the room and asked her to step outside and she looked at me and I'd never seen this look on this woman's face before. And she says, I need you to understand how much danger you and your family are in. I, she said, I don't think it's possible to overstate this and you need to do something or somebody's going to end up dead. And she actually said, she said that I, what did she say? She is on the trajectory um, that is typical of a serial killer. And yeah, that was, she is actually the first one that used the term psychopathy with me and, and was like, look, it, you know, and this is really where I got started understanding the genetic component and that, you know, psychopaths are born, sociopaths are made. Prior to that, I was under the misconception that it's basically the same thing and the two words are interchangeable. Um, so, you know, we had to switch. She's like, you know, you've been approaching this from a trauma informed direction, which makes sense, because, you know, because of your experience and everything, but that's not who she is and that's not where we are. And if you keep doing that, you're going to, you're going to die. 
Um, so yeah, that she was the first one to actually be really direct with me about that. And that was rather conflicting because I had just had that moment. That stay was three months, three and a half months, something like that. That was her first residential stay. And so I had had that moment that you had had of realizing when they're not here, things are smoother. I'm not terrified. You know, I'm not on edge all the time. Like things are, everybody is in a better place. And so I was already conflicted about that. And then here I'm being told like, she has to come home with you and guess what? She wants to kill you. Um, but I cannot say that I, you know, realized that and made that decision. Then I still hung on for another year trying to make it work until I got till we got to the point of she is making threats directly to facility staff. So if you come pick her up, child welfare is still getting involved because now you're not protecting your other kid. So I, I, I kept trying until I got to the point where I was in a corner and there were no other real options, but. When, um, when I had my kid, he, he actually had three different inpatient stays. And so the first one was about an hour and a half away from me. And he was there for a month and a half. Um, the second one was about two and a half, two, two and a half hours away. He was there for uh, about two and a half months. And then the, the third was about an hour and a half away. And he was there for, I don't know, six days. And it was super peaceful during the month and a half and the three two and a half months, three months, however long it was. And even still, I remember being like, it is my duty to this child to go pick him up and bring him home, no matter how much it fills me with dread. Yep. Yep. I had that yeah, same feeling every time. And you mentioned the distances to the facilities. What I want people to understand <laughs> is the way the system is set up, you are usually, your child is usually in a facility that is several hours away. Um, the facilities that she stayed in ranged from three hours to five hours away. And that's one way. So we have to transport a child who just attempted to murder me. I have to drive with her across the state. And they said their safety plan for this is we will call you on your cell phone every hour. And if you don't answer, then we will call the police so they can come look for whatever's left of you. And, um, but even if that wasn't the case, even if there wasn't the physical danger aspect, because they're minors, the parents are responsible for all transport or responsible for going up. Like I had to drive her five hours just to sign paperwork and then drive five hours back. Thankfully, I had a friend who lived part way home and I was able to stop and sleep because I had been in the an ER for two days before that. I, so I was running on no sleep and I could not safely drive all the way back home. And so there were times like I had to drive three hours to go pick her up from one facility 
take her 12 miles to the next facility, drop her off, sign paperwork, and then have to go home. So, like, people don't understand how even just doing that, I mean, that was financially devastating. She's been out of my house for three months, and I am just now, this month, I paid off the last of my overdue bills that I was behind on from the last year and year and a half of her bouncing around impatience because you can't say no you well I mean you can but then you have then you're going through the abandonment process with child welfare like (laughs) you know which is what which is what ultimately happened but like that's not a system that works you know and and we were talking about looking at out-of-state placements but then you know, and I had found a place that I thought was going to take her in Nevada, Utah, I don't remember. Um, but it was voluntary and she refused in the end, so she didn't go. But so if I had taken her, then what? When she acts out and gets kicked out or decides she doesn't want to be there anymore, then I have to drive however, I don't know how far that would be, 20 hours uh, to go get her because it was like northern Nevada. Families can't do that generally. Right. Like, there's not a system to provide care and safety for the families. Exactly. And the kids. And there's no, like, other safe alternatives either, because flying would be just as bad. Like, you're just in a trapped, enclosed metal tube with her and a, a bunch of other people, or she could, like, run in the airport. Like, there's no good alternatives for anything for like transportation either just let alone the fact like good options for resources and support like there's just like nothing why <laughs> that's the question like you know because i i accidentally did this whole tiktok thing right i did one video thinking the same 12 people that always watched them and answer was going to see it and nobody else. So I intended on, cause I had, I recorded that. I, you can see I was in my van. I'm still in my van, but that's a whole other issue. The air conditioner's too loud in my house for to record. Um, but I was in my car um, because I had literally just drove into my driveway from court. That's why I'm looking all shell shocked because of that all of that had happened and it had all happened so fast. We had went from, I have to prove that I am not, that I have not mistreated this child, that I am not willfully abandoning this child, that this is a necessity. And we went from that all the way to terminating my parental rights in court in a two hour span. Like it had been a lot. (laughs) So I recorded this quick video and then all of these questions have come up. Um, But, you know, and of course I've been part of like a support group for parents of kids with conduct disorder for a while and so I knew it was an issue but then seeing my comments on TikTok like there are so many people who just don't think it's important to fix the system and I'm like so what you're just saying that our kids are disposable and it's fine and our families deserve to be at risk and Because, yeah, our kids went back into state care. But what does that fix? Exactly. It gave our household some safety. 
but it didn't give them additional care really it doesn't no. protect anybody in the future from them why is there not a public will to address this i don't know that's the well, point of frustration i'm having don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel and to be sure you never miss an upload make sure you turn your notifications on and please come join us on social media so we can continue these conversations in between episodes. You'll find us at Hapoxia Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok.